welcome. This is Dr. John Demartini. This is one of the most amazing and inspiring shows that you can listen into. If you want to be on the edge of your seats, if you want to open up your heart, if you want to expand your mind, and you want to meet incredible people, stay tuned because you're just about to experience a transformative radio show that will change your life. And you're listening to the Dr. Pat Show is coming up right next. Welcome to the Dr. Pat Show. Talk radio to thrive by. Powerful, inspiring, and coming to you live, bringing you stories of people like you and me, busting through and living life full out. Get ready to dare to wonder what your life would be like if you knew you could not fail. Hey, everybody. Welcome, welcome. This is a fascinating interview, and let me tell you why. We have been looking at a number of different initiatives for what we're about to do for 2020. And out of the meeting one day comes a term, and I'll say it, blockchain. And out of that meeting, blockchain technology, and most of the people in the room turned around, looked around and said, wow, that sounds kind of interesting, but I don't think we quite understand implications for powerful, 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 powerful applications. Today, Suzanne Livingston, director of IBM Food Trust Network, is joining me here today. And we are talking about this blockchain technology that promotes food safety, reduces food waste, and revolutionizes the supply chain. Why is this important? You're going to hear from Suzanne right now. And not just the implications, but beyond implications, applications. It's what I love talking about. Suzanne, great to have you. Oh, Dr. Pat, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So we're getting ready to announce our uh, crowdfunding for our uh, a new initiative, right? Uh, and we did have this meeting the other day, and out comes this language. Now, for a lot of people, they don't know what it is. And I think we should start with a little brief explanation because then that's going to open up the door for why what you're bringing to the table here, no pun intended, is literally uh, not just powerful, but it's necessary. A lot of people right now think about blockchain as cryptocurrency. Yeah. I'm share $50 with you. I'm going to send it to you. You're going to get it. It's going to increment in your ledger. And that's really what a lot of people think about. But that model is based on a few things. One, two parties who may not necessarily know each other and don't trust each other. And we need to get them to share some value or some exchange of value. Well, what blockchain brings is not just that for cryptocurrency, but it can bring that for anything that we share. And in this case, what we've built is a system around sharing information about food. Now, food is a particularly difficult subject because over the years, it's been really hard for us to trace the origin of food. It's very complex. There's a lot of parties involved. Some of these supply chains are international. Food can travel 1,500 miles to get to your dinner plate. And in that complexity, the way for us to see traceability is to get these companies who don't necessarily know each other, don't necessarily trust each other, to share information. And that's where blockchain is starting to build trust outside of cryptocurrencies and in food trust specifically for getting food information shared. All right. Now, this is really why I wanted to talk with you, 
because you're absolutely right. People hear a term, they associate it with another term, and they think they think A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and whatever that is. But we are really looking at, I think in my language, we are looking at a crisis when we say the words food and then trust. And I think that this is what you're bringing to the table here, right? Let's talk about this because people think that there is something in place that's going to protect them from so many things when it comes to what we put in our bodies. But boy, I'll tell you, there's a lot of room for improvement. Tell me how you're going to be doing that. You're spot on that there is a huge deficit in trust in food. Consumers, one out of three, don't believe that the food that they're buying is what it says on the package. They don't believe that it's safe to eat. And this is continuing to grow. Every time we have another one of these recalls, consumers' confidence goes down in food. Now, this is not a, a system that will prevent E. coli from coming into romaine, but when we find that there is a contamination, what it does do is it says, show me everywhere else in our food supply chain where there is a risk. Where could this, where this farm or this ranch has, uh, is part of an investigation? Show me where else other food products are that came from the same location. That's the type of trust we need so that when we're buying food products, we know that if, if a contamination happened, that food has been removed from the shelves and I'm not going to buy it to serve to my family at dinner. So that's the level of trust we're trying to rebuild with consumers by ensuring first that the companies themselves know where the contaminated food lives in the supply chain and get it out of uh, distribution centers and stores. But second, that you can also, as a consumer, see that information too and go into the stores, buy what you, you love and not have to have a complete lack of food when there's a, an outbreak or a contamination. Yeah. I, do you, on a scale of one to 10, I mean, we were talking about this yesterday um, because we had our first focus group on our crowdfunding initiative, which is really based on our technology. And, um, and what was clear to me is that what you're doing by having this interview, it's, it's threefold, I think, Suzanne. I think it's one, you're educating people about the, an innovation in technology that people hear about, but they don't understand the power. Number two, you're talking to people about a supply chain that is so important for us in, in that what happens when we talk about food or food chain or food trust, we don't just talk about, geez, I'm going to the restaurant. Oh, and maybe I got something that's not sitting with me. We're talking to millions of people that are affected by this, aren't we? One out of 10 people get sick each year because of a food outbreak, and mm. 420,000 still die every year. This is the World Health Organization shares this data with us. And, and if we can get to what food is contaminated and reduce the amount of time that it's exposed to consumers, we want to reduce those numbers. If we can find it quickly and easily, that's our goal. Now, in the past, because a lot of these records have been kept either on paper or are sh are not shared with each other, in some cases, like a, we mm -hmm. had a, a company that we worked with, Walmart, they uh, brought a package of mangoes and said, 
uh, to their food safety experts, you know, find the source of this. What if this was contaminated? What other uh, products that we have in our shelves would be affected by this contamination? And it took them almost seven days yeah. to find that source. There's yeah. paper, there's complexity, it's international. So when all that information is shared in a system that the parties who are involved can see end to end, then we can search and instantly know, oh, this package of mangoes came from this location. And now show me everything else in our supply chain that came from that same location. So we can focus efforts on getting those food products off the shelves, not everything. Now, you may remember last Thanksgiving, we had no romaine because there was a contamination and this continues to happen. We want you to still be able to buy romaine, but know that the romaine you're buying is not from one of those contaminated sources. Yeah. I mean, mean, I know we've got this short period of time, uh, but I love that you have taken this on. Let's make sure before we get way far here, because I tend to have so many questions. What's the best website? How do people find out more about you, what you're doing? And and then I have another question for you. Uh, the best place to go is ibm.com slash food. You'll see videos. You'll see what our clients are using the system to track and also how they're working with different kinds of data like RFID and IoT data as well. Okay. In this, in the process, as we look at the innovations that you're bringing forth, and I do consider this innovation, some people would just say, ah, technology. You know, there's a term that for us, we're trying to educate people, and it's a term called AI. And people think about that as something like, uh, hey, Alexa, turn on my lights. But we really see it differently here, especially in what we're creating for next year. How can we talk to the consumer to say, look, what's going on in your innovation here for this technology, this can save lives because it's going to set up a form of intelligence that is, number one, going to be able to trace stuff, but number two, trace it quickly. Because I think this is what we're talking about. We're we're, we're not saying that paper trails don't work. But whoa, if you've ever tried to do your taxes based on paper, you know how long that takes. Absolutely. The first step is getting from that paper into a digital form. So that it's, it's something that we can work with as data. And once it's in that digital form, we have access to it very quickly. And then we can use the logic, the intelligence of the system to connect the dots between the supply Mm. chain players. Yeah. So what I love about what you just said, and this is what I love about our audience. We have the best audience in the planet. This is my 16th year doing this. And this is going to be something so near and dear to them. All you need to do is look at the feedback we get. Here's here's a question for you about this. I know, and I've been told by experts, people have to be responsible for what they do and what they put in their body. And what I say is, to a point, if I order something from a reputable place, or I go in and I buy something, there's a responsibility for me to check the label. But my responsibility to figure out where that food comes from stops there. Aren't you stepping in to help with that second part? Absolutely. So you love the idea that the, uh, the person raised that, you know, you're responsible for what you put in your body, but you also base those decisions on what you know about yeah. the food products, about what you put into your body. If you believe that it's 
healthy and you believe that's important to you. If health is important to you and you believe that it's um, fresh and it's produce and it's healthy and that's important, then you should know in the information about that so you can align to your values mm-hmm. and your goals. For some, it's I want to buy local and support local. But how do they really know that the food product they're buying is local if they don't know the actual source or origin? Or for others, it's I want to um, buy food products for my family and I uh, want the best quality. Well, how do you know that the source uh, locations or that the source manufacturers for that food product are applying the highest quality standards they can? So we're about giving you information so you can make decisions as a consumer and, and align those decisions to your values and what you bring to the table. Well, first of all, let me thank you for today. Second, please let's give out a website again. And then lastly, I'd love to know your personal message because I know this is a personal passion for you. So the best place to go is ibm.com slash food to learn more. And you know, as a, as a mother of eight-year-old twins, it's mm. really important for me to bring healthy and safe food to my family. And as a technologist, as someone who's passionate about technology, who's built products uh, that have served uh, well, different kinds of audiences, I, that's my passion is in building. I get to bring two, those two things together. I get to use technology to help bring transparency and visibility to food, and it benefits my own children, my family, too. It's the perfect world for me. I love it. Thank you, Suzanne. Thank you for all that you do. And I will be attempting to follow up with you uh, for an hour of consulting on what we are doing. I could use your expertise. Thank you so much for everything. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Wow. Um, Hey, everybody. This is just a tip. Please go to that website. We're getting ready for the holidays. Please look at what Suzanne is saying. That's the responsibility we have. Hey, everybody, let's take a short break. We'll be right back. Your inspiration all day on TransformationTalkRadio.com. Welcome, everybody. Welcome. Welcome to our good news segment. I am so, I am so thrilled. Uh, Look, how many times have you heard me talk about insomnia? I'm just asking you. I have gotten more call-ins from our listeners on not being able to sleep, and there might be information you don't know. As a matter of fact, I know this information you don't know about. That's why Dr. Phyllis Z joining me here today, Chief of, Chief of Sleep Medicine, Department of Neurology, Northwestern University. We've got a great website to give you all of the above, but this is the question. What does the latest study show and what does it uncover on how insomnia and sleeping difficulties can affect the quality of life. Dr. Z, thank you for joining me here today. I think this is a big one. I agree. Yeah, I was out on Saturday and I I play a sport. I play table tennis and Mm -hmm. I was talking, sitting down with one of the people that I play with and he was telling me that he did not sleep the entire night did not sleep the entire night. And I just looked at him and I, I thought to myself, wow, he is he is the least likely person that I would think of that could not sleep. But that probably has nothing to do with what you found, does it? Well, there are many faces of insomnia and it is such a common problem that affects, as you already know, uh, you know 30 
plus percent of our general population. And especially in older adults, that can be as high as 50 to 60% having chronic problems uh, with your sleep. And so I, I think that this new survey is really uh, important because it really highlights not only how important sleep is during the night and for the functions that it has during the night, but also the impact on daytime functioning and quality of life. This is what patients come in to tell me about is the impact on their ability mm -hmm. to function during the day. I want to ask you this question, you know, a short version, of course, but many people think they know what insomnia really is. But from your perspective, how are you defining it? Insomnia is not just symptoms, but there's actually a disorder, it's a sleep disorder that's characterized by symptoms of difficulty falling asleep, staying asleep, or just waking up too early. And that affects the quality of their daytime functioning and also may cause, of course, distress. And it's got to right. be a chronic problem. It's got to last about three months or more. Yeah, that's what I was just going to ask you because... You know, when we hear these stories about somebody not being able to sleep the entire night, usually when you when you sit down and you talk with them, yeah. it's not like a one-time event. You get some information right. that says this is really something that somebody's battling. What has this, what has this fantastic uh, study showed? What has this poll showed? Yeah, what the survey shows is, it, it, it actually provides a really nice insight into the impact of not being able to get a good night's sleep on daytime performance and daytime function of the individual, of course, who suffers from insomnia. But moreover, I think what to me is unique is that it also highlights the importance uh, of getting a good night's sleep for the individual who lives with people with insomnia. And so it, it, it was really surprising to me that more than eight out of 10 people who are cohabitants of people with insomnia say that how that person sleeps during the night actually affects their own daytime functioning during the day. Mm. And I think that's really, uh, for me, eye-opening because I'm thinking, wow, as a physician, I'm thinking, wow, this is gonna be really important, not just for the individual. I gotta also be aware of the impact on the family. And those dynamics are gonna be very important even for the treatment of the patient himself or herself. Yeah, I think not only are you bringing up a very important point, but I think what you're bringing up is almost an invisible population. Right. You know, these are the people that don't come in and say, hey, Dr. Z, you know what, I'm not sleeping at night, but they come in and say, well, wait a minute, my spouse, my partner, they're not sleeping at night. And so, um, you know, when we look at this, let's go through and talk about the impact of this, mm -hmm. because I don't think people quite understand what happens in the morning and how that day unfolds. What is this, the impact and the seriousness of this? Well, one is more difficulty sometimes to wake up in the morning. You're in a brain fog. It's hard to concentrate. Uh, mood is altered, more likely to be more irritable. You can imagine how that would affect, right? Uh, anyone who you're, 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 you're in touch with, not only those li living with you, but also it really translates into the office, into your work uh, environment uh, as, as well. And, and really performance fatigue, 
inability to concentrate during the day. It's, it's, it's really uh, a, a huge issue uh, mm -hmm. for quality of life. All right. One of the things that I think that folks know is they know and they've heard the term insomnia. They've heard, you know, that this is something yeah. that could affect them. Right. But, you know, when I went to look at the website dayafterinsomnia.com and I took a look at what was there, right? Mm -hmm. I, I think the thing that is so important and for you being such an incredible spokesperson about this is that it's not like an isolated, but better yet, you said the word, it's not acute. It really is chronic. So we're not talking about, well, wait a minute, I couldn't sleep last night. We're talking about day after day after mm -hmm. day. Is it cumulative? Does this have a cumulative effect? You know what I mean? It's, it is indeed a chronic problem. It's day after day. The, what's cumulative about it is that you continue to suffer with it. And the less you're able to get a good night's sleep, the more you worry about not getting good night's sleep because of the impact that that has on daytime function. So indeed, it just it perpetuates the problem even further. I want to ask you, I mean, you are an expert in this arena. And whenever I talk to people that come out and really are passionate and committed mm -hmm. to informing the public about something like this, there's usually something very personal and story that you've been affected by or you've seen in your clients. You know, for you, what have you seen over the past 10 years? Is this a problem that's getting worse? And do we have any idea why this is? It is a problem that's getting uh, more common. But what I think it's really uh, wonderful from my perspective that people are beginning to recognize that sleep is indeed a pillar of health, that it's mm -hmm. really important not only for daytime functioning, which of course is huge, but it's also for your health, long-term health uh, as well. What I think really gets me up uh, in the morning and thinking that what I do is important is the impact of when they, when our patients sleep better, how the ramifications of that go beyond just, you know, hey, you know, I, I, I slept better, but the daytime functioning. And as this survey really highlights the importance of that for the entire family uh, dynamics and, of course, work dynamics uh, as well. Um, when we think about this, let's just go to a performance conversation if we could, yeah. because I know a lot of the information here is that, you know, people wake up, they feel tired, they mm -hmm. feel fatigued. Um, a, a small percentage feels that they're ready to start today, a very small percent. I thought, I think I saw something like 7%, right. which means 93% are saying they're not like right. ready to start their day. Um, what is it about this that affects overall health and well-being? You know, once upon a time, back in the day, we go to our family doc and our family doc would say something like, you got to get a good night's sleep mm -hmm. so you can be refreshed, so your body can heal, so you can be renewed. How does it affect the systemic operation of our bodies? It's There's been so many wonderful studies now in the past decade that really speaks to, to, to that issue. Sleep is a rest period, but for your brain uh, and your body, it is a, a necessity 
We even know now that when you sleep, you're able, your, your brain is able to get rid of some of these, you know, toxic molecules that build up uh, during the day as we live and function. And that, that this is, this is really important, especially, you know, getting deep sleep and good quality of sleep. We also know that poor sleep can lead to risk factors for diabetes, for high blood pressure, for heart disease. And although also, since often poor sleep is often comorbid with other medical conditions. So I like to think about is poor sleep can lead to poor health, but poor health can also lead to poor sleep. So this is a bi-directional relationship that is really important. Yeah. As a matter of fact, when I was looking at this uh, uh, the survey, and by the way, what a great uh, website that yeah. you all have put up. Yeah. I mean, dayafterinsomnia.com yeah. <laughs> explains everything. Yeah. I mean, it talks about, wait a minute, this is more than a symptom. This is mm-hmm. one third of adults. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing I want to ask you about is, this is a little bit of a surprise to me, but I guess not. Uh, more common in women, middle-aged and elderly, but I could understand why now with that you just said this, right? Especially if you're talking about people, let's say with arthritis, you know, right. pain, painful arthritis. Exactly. Uh, medical conditions, it, you know, pain, chronic pain. And what's really neat about the, the, this, this issue with pain, we used to think, well, of course you're in pain, so you can't sleep, but we're beginning to recognize that poor sleep actually increases pain. So again, this beautiful bi-directional relationship. So again, making sleep a top item here that if you can improve sleep, you can very likely also improve the comorbid conditions, including things like pain. Okay, I know time is short. Thank you so much for today, uh, Dr. Z. I wanna ask you uh, one last question. Uh, if there is any other website, please give that out. I have dayafterinsomnia.com. Last question. I'd love to know your personal message, what you'd like to leave us with today. Absolutely. It's really important to prioritize uh, your sleep because there's so many ramifications from health to daytime functioning. And if you have a chronic problem with sleep, please discuss this with your physician or care provider. Awesome. Thank you so much for getting the word out. And please, please, those of you out there that perhaps are not affected directly, but are in relationship with people that can't sleep, this is you too. Let's take a short break, everybody. We'll be right back. TransformationTalkRadio.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome. Look at this is our good news segment, but I got to tell you, this is really good news. This is about new hope for the leading cause of genetic infant mortality. Yes, as we take a look in National Caregivers Month, or as we take a look in general, I am honored to have Dr. Crystal Proud and Samantha Lackey joining me here today, because we are talking about spinal muscular atrophy and more. Dr. Proud, of course, is somebody committed, dedicated, passionate, and an expert in pediatric neuromuscular neurology, boy, that is hard to say, at Children's Hospital of the King's Daughter in Norfolk, Virginia, where my folks are from. But today, we're also joined by somebody that knows up close and personal about what this is about. And so when we say new hope, we really mean it. Dr. Proud, thank you. Samantha, thank you for today. 
Thank you. Thank you for having us. I apologize for really butchering your title right there. <laughs> it's a mouthful. I understand. Oh my gosh. But the bottom line is it's important work. And, you know, one of the things I know, it's a body of work that you, Dr. Proud, have said yes to probably because of your passion and purpose and you see what this is about. I want to ask you this question and then, boy, then we'll hear from you, Samantha. In your journey to become a specialist in this area, I want to know what gets you up in the morning and keeps you moving so passionately about this rare and devastating disease? What gets you up, moving, motivated, and passionate and purposeful? My patients. Um, Mm. So when I chose to be a pediatric neuromuscular neurologist, um, we actually didn't have any treatment for this disease. And so my conversations have shifted dramatically over the past three years. Um, When I first became a neuromuscular subspecialist, I would share with the families uh, this devastating diagnosis. And at the time, I didn't have any treatment options. And unfortunately, that meant that uh, my babies that had type 1 SMA would definitively pass away, usually well before the age of two years old. And so I was effectively a hospice doctor. And um, and it was an honor to be able to allow um, my kids to pass with dignity and grace and peace. Um, and I'm so incredibly grateful for the hope that new treatments have been able to bring and um, and have allowed me to have that conversation of new diagnosis completely shift. It's, um, it is an exciting one for me. Mm. I want to ask you, uh, and, and then I want to hop over to Samantha. I want to ask you, uh, Dr. Proud, what are the discoveries? You know, what have we learned here uh, in groundbreaking research? What have we learned about uh, SMA? Oh, so many things, um, and so many things we have left to learn as well. Yeah. Um, the two treatments that are FDA-approved right now, uh, Spinraza and Bilgentma, are um, two of just what's the beginning. There is so much more to come. We're continuing to participate in clinical research trials. Uh, now that we know that this condition is caused by a missing or mutated SMN1 gene, and that that is uh, the source of the uh, failed production of uh, motor nerve proteins, We've been able to utilize that information to steer treatments toward producing more survival motor neuron proteins. Um, and that's exactly what Zolgensma does. It delivers a transgene to help um, the, the body uh, produce more of the protein that's missing through a one-time IV infusion. And um, so there are, you know, that's just one of the two FDA-approved medications that are available. And mm-hmm. obviously, uh, parents should talk with their physician about uh, the potential risks and benefits and decide which one is best for them or their child. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to say that out front. You know, when we do a show like this, this is a show for information. And what we want to say to everybody, this is so you've got your pen and your paper or your smartphone, and you could sit down with your doctor and say, hey, what about this? Um, Samantha, thank you for joining me here today. It's great to have you. Thank you for letting me share my story. Um it's hard to imagine it, those of us that sit here and and are listening. It's hard to imagine what this means when I said new hope for the leading cause of genetic infant mortality. New hope. How has that? I, how should I say it? That directive. How is that directive? New hope. How has that affected you in your journey? 
So when Stella was first diagnosed and when we first started talking about spinal muscular atrophy with our neurologist, the very first question that we had was, okay, how much time do we have with Stella? Because we knew that with how soon she had presented symptoms that she would probably be a type 1, which is the most devastating type. Um, and he he didn't answer that question. Mm. He he stopped me right there and he said, we're not going to have that conversation because there are two different treatments. And we went over the two different treatments. And after we talked with him and talked with our family, we decided our our best hope and Stella's best chance was to receive Zolgensma. And we have only seen incredible things happen after she was treated. Mm. Um, I, I want to just ask you this question. I think it's difficult, no matter how you look at it, to be a parent and to get information. What was your reaction when you heard this is what's happening to your child? About it now. I know well, I get emotional. Now, ask. Emotional talking about I it know. for the rest of our lives. Um, yeah. I just wanted to do everything possible to give mm-hmm. Stella the best chance. And um, I wanted to know everything. I wanted to know everything from, okay, what do we have to worry about? What do I need to look for from here? What do we do moving forward? And the week and a half between when she was diagnosed and when she was treated was the hardest because here I am. I know she has this terrible disease and we're waiting for our hope. And that was the longest week and a half of our lives. Mm-hmm. Um, but like I said, from there, and we only, we bring our most positive attitudes to the table for Stella. Um, I refuse to do anything but that from here on out and from her diagnosis and has been advocating and sharing as much as possible because I also want other families to know you're not alone in this. Um, It does, it can, and it does turn into a very dark and scary place, but with the help of um, so many other support systems and other families who have been there that made, that has made all the difference in our situation. Well, you do know that Stella and what Stella means in Latin is star. Yes. You know that, right? Of course you do. do. And I think she's a guiding star. And, you know, that's why I get so um, uplifted by hearing you and Dr. Proud speak. You know, this, this beautiful beautiful child, you know, as this shining star leading the way to this conversation today to help so many people is beyond anything that you can describe. And I want to thank you for your courage and joining us here today. Thank you for the opportunity. It means the world to me to be able to share her story. Mm. Dr. Proud, um, I mean, I I can only imagine what it must be like for you to now have hope and to work with Stella and Samantha and the family. What is, from your perspective, and I know this is a short interview, what is at the the top uh, of your list, the top three things we can share with people today? And please, let's make sure we give out the website. 
So the first would be to make sure that you are communicating with your pediatrician as a family, as a caregiver. If you notice low muscle tone, weakness, failure to meet initial motor milestones in your child, you have to communicate that to your pediatrician and call attention to it. Uh, that would lead to early diagnosis and institution of early treatment. And we as physicians, number two, would be that we have to be ready to listen to that. The family and the parents always know what is going on with their child. They have this gut instinct that we have to pay attention to. And so even if it's just for reassurance, we have to be able to take those concerns and evaluate them thoroughly. Um, the third would be resources. So the major resource for my families and patients with spinal muscular atrophy is the Cure SMA organization. And their website is Cure, C-U-R-E-S-M-A dot O-R-G. And you can find more resources, support, and information on the two available FDA-approved treatments on their website. Mm. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, Samantha, I want to thank you for today. And I want to also ask you the same question uh, and ask you what your personal message is for everyone. My personal message for everyone is educate yourself about spinal muscular atrophy. Our family had no history of this genetic disease until we were placed in this position. And uh, for families that are going through this diagnosis or that will go through this diagnosis, I just want them to know that the SMA community as a whole is, it's not a fun club to be a part of by any means, but we are there for each other no matter what time of the day. Like I know if I have a question, the first person I run to is another mom who has a kid with SMA. Um, there are a lot of resources. The Muscular Dystrophy Association CureSMA.org is a huge one, as well as Avexis and their One Gene program. They have been with us since day one, and we're forever grateful for that partnership. They're stuck with us from now on. <laughs> if, I can ever, if I can ever give praise to any of those places, it's, we're very thankful. Well, I want to thank you both for joining me here today, and I know you have got more of these interviews to do. Thank you so much for all that you do. Thank, thank you. you. All right, everybody, let's take a short break. Again, www.cure, S as in Sam, M as in Mary, A as in apple.org, and find out. So, Zach, if you're editing this, this is an addendum. I'd like to add this to the interview. You know, thank you, Dr. Proud, and thank you, Samantha. I just want to go over a few things here that perhaps uh, folks don't know. If left untreated, SMA type 1, which is the most common type, leads to death or the need for permanent ventilation by the age of 2 and more than 90% of the children with this type of SMA. Degeneration and loss of motor neurons start shortly before birth, escalate quickly, with over 95% lost by 6 months of age, which makes early diagnosis and treatment critically important, critically important. Untreated SMA type 2 patients may never walk without support and often need a wheelchair. Um, and more than 30% of patients with SMA type 2 will die by the age of 25. So many primary care physicians are unfamiliar with SMA symptoms. I encourage all of you to really, really look at this and information that you have would lead 
to saving a life and helping a child. And so this is important. You know, when people wait and see, it is usually too late. And so this is an important interview. This is an important message. SMA experts recommend universal newborn screening to facilitate identification, diagnosis, treatment, and supportive care as early as possible. However, however, only 14 states nationwide currently screen for SMA. I don't even know how that's possible or why that is. So please become an advocate, get the word out, join in the new hope for leading cause of genetic infant mortality and become hope for an infant. We'll see you next time. Inspire. Create. Empower. Only on TransformationTalkRadio.com. Hey, everybody. You know what? I don't get to do an interview like this that often. And I got to tell you, I am like totally jazzed about this. Gene Goldman joining me here today, Chief Investment Officer and Director of Research. You know how I feel about research, everybody, right? Satara Investment Management. One of the things that you've heard me talk about is a new level of awareness for all of us around money. We have now done this week four shows, and it's only Tuesday. We have done four shows on money, the energy of money, what to do with money, how to look at money, what you need to know about money. But today's show is a bit different. What should you be looking forward for when it comes to the money? And how do global markets affect this? Now, the minute I say global markets, I can feel everybody out there. Don't worry, we're gonna break it down. Because when I saw this, I thought, Give me flashbacks of getting an F in economics. That's why I'm not talking about it. Gene's talking about it. Gene, it's great to have you here. Thank you, Dr. Pat. Great to be on your show. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you and your listeners. Well, you know, I looked at this outline, and here's the thing that I'm really struck by. While I did get an F uh, in in economics first time (laughs) around, uh, due to protest, by the way, I did study Uh the psychology of finance. And so one of the things that I'm really struck by as I look at what you're going to talk about is Mm -hmm. the interaction between us human beings, what we know, what we're willing to know, and what we absolutely need to know in simpler terms. And so I want to talk to you about this thing we call the market. Um, Whether you've watched all of the Wall Street movies or not, Let's talk about the market in terms of everyday life for people like you and me. When we say the markets, what are we going to cover today? You're going to, so first of all, I, I got an F in psychology, so, I, so I'm on the opposite <laughs> of you. <laughs> okay, we're going to make um, a really good team here today. That <laughs> will be the F and F pair. Yes, that's us. <laughs> um, yeah, so, so the markets are it's it's a it's a basically it's a um it's a, I guess a thing I'm, I'm terrible words um, it's a thing in, in terms of it kind of drives the optimism uh, of invest of investors it drives sort of 
uh, profitability. It drives financing for everything from the U.S. government in terms of treasury market, in terms of company markets and buying stocks. So it's basically a way to to create ownership of companies, also driving um, financing for different investment perspectives for a company. But one of the things that I, I also am struck by is that we have, uh, what I should say is in the recent study here, Gene, you should know this. One of the recent studies on level of stress, anxiety, and burnout, global study, like you study global markets, there's a global yeah. study done. And the research showed, what the data showed, is we here in the United States seem to be living in the most anxious state we've ever lived in. I really do believe mm -hmm. it's about what we're talking about today and how people are not getting the information that you're sharing with us today. Because not only is knowledge power, but knowledge is also a stress reducer in a lot of cases. What? Let's break this down. Let's first start to talk about stocks. Uh, I recently had an opportunity to invest in a company that I can't even talk about right here. But the point that I'm trying to make about this is we're looking at, do I need to grow? What do I need to know? Or do I need to go? That was like a little rhyme. <laughs> I love it. Um, and I think what you said at the onset was really, really important. Mm -hmm. We live in an anxious state of mind right now, an anxious state. And that's true because we had um, 2008, the Great Recession. It, it definitely, it, it really, it, it really was traumatic for us as investors, us as research people. And we lost some companies, we lost some mortgage firms, we lost, it was very traumatic. Yeah. The stock market fell 38%. That was a tough time. So that's been in the back of everyone's mind. This is why, you know, this expansion that we're in right now, this economic expansion, it's the longest since the birth of our nation. It's, it's crazy. It's long. It's like over 10 years long, longest since the birth of our nation, but it's the most unloved expansion because people in the back of their minds are looking saying, when's the recession going to happen? When's the recession going to happen? And, you know, you look at um, you know, we haven't had that many asset bubbles. Yes, there's a little priciness in housing. Mm -hmm. It's spotty here and there, yeah. but we haven't seen those big jumps in in assets. So it's most unloved. But again, this yeah. is what's causing anxiety. Yeah. You know, one of the things I love that you're talking about, and here's the cool thing. Um, you, you know, I live in a place where housing is very, very high for the demographic, some folks say. You know, uh, you look at L.A. and you look at the demographic and you look for housing and you say, oh, yeah, it's L.A. But Seattle, nobody says, oh, yeah, that's Seattle. Like, right. You know, they don't just say, oh, my God. Yeah, that's Seattle. No, Seattle's not like Beverly Hills. But the prices of homes have gone up. I've noticed two things. One, the leveling out of that. Uh, and that's very different than the place we've been before where houses, houses, assets, assets, up, 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 up and they don't stop. Mm -hmm. I'm starting to see a level out. Uh, the other thing I'd like you to talk about is I've interviewed four different people in the last month, and I think they were mostly from one of the, the banks here, B of A, who are offering programs to discount, apply grants, to encourage people to buy homes. I want to ask you this question. Where mm -hmm. are we with our buying chutzpah? And what I mean by that is, are we buying? Are we afraid to buy? Where are we? Are we hesitant because we're not sure about what's happening with prices? What's your sense of buying? 
Sure. Let me let me go to your first part first. Yeah. So about about um, hesitant about the leveling out. Yeah. So you know we had a huge run up in housing starts. So housing housing being built going into the Great Recession. So yeah. if you look at data from '06 '07, there's a dramatic jump. But then if you look at housing starts today relative to that levels, we're about half that. So what this means is that we're not building as many houses as we did before going into the Great Recession, even though our population has grown. So that gives us some 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 optimism that housing will continue to motor along slowly but surely because we don't have those big housing bubbles that we've seen before. Also, interest rates are low. That's good. It's very creates very attractive mortgages. Also, the economy is in much better shape in terms of consumer spending, in terms of you know, bank regulations and so on. Um, regarding your second point about yeah. hesitancy, um, can you repeat your question again? Sorry. Yeah, uh, well, the thing that I'm I'm really referring to is sort of the you know the idea of buyability. Are we willing to buy? And let me just see where. Let me tell you where I'm tying it into. Um, mm -hmm. Once upon a time, there was information that leaked out that said pretty much, oh, we're going to put tariffs on things. Not really a leak. It was actually a headline. Tariffs, tariffs, tariffs. Right. All we heard was tariffs, tariffs, tariffs. That has seemed mm -hmm. to calm down, although people know it. And, and you know, my sense is when the announcement was made, people jumped to buy. They were buying early, right? Have we... Uh, decrease the level of anxiety around the tariff conversation? Are people more or less saying, wait a minute, I feel better off than I was last year, a few cents here and there, it's not going to matter. And my sense from a psychological perspective is, look, I'm much better off. And I, this is not everybody, but a lot of folks feel much better off. And so a few cents here, a few cents there doesn't seem to be hurting them. The rest of the population, every penny counts. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, you know, you, you can always tie it back to our debt. You know, we have mm -hmm. was it like fourteen, fifteen trillion dollars of debt. It's a you know record levels of debt. Yeah. But then if you take debt and divide that by income levels, and that's actually a very very low level. Yeah. And then even two thirds of debt is is uh, mortgage related. So you're locked into low long term rates for a very long right. time. So um, that, that you have to keep that in mind. But again, you know, you know, the anxiety right now is just around trade wars, yeah. around you know, what kind of tweet do we get, political uncertainty. Yeah, that's right. All these things are overhanging. You know, and then you know, think about this. You know, my mom said this to me once, and I remember right, she she called me this summer. She said, "Gene, how long have we been in a recession?" I go, "Mom, we are not in a recession. You have to have two negative quarters of GDP." <laughs> and my mom goes, "Gene, that's that's economics mumbo jumbo. That's right. It's a recession when I it's a, it's a recession when I lose my job, and that's true. That's you know, right. President Truman said that perfectly. He goes, "Listen, it's a recession when your neighbor loses his job. It's a depression when you lose your job." Yeah, and, I, and that's perfect. So the top of jobs. And your mom is so smart because I studied job yeah. loss and a psychological contract violation for 10 years. Your mom is yeah. right on it. And what we're seeing is a sense of that. But I want to jump to something because sure. psychology and how we view mm -hmm. money and the psychology of money is a lot of times what drives things. Um, we can be talking about stock, stock price, the stock market, but underneath that, there's a sense from people of, do I trust the word trust? And I want to ask mm -hmm. you about that because the feds, I think the feds just dropped the interest rate again. 
And so what people are seeing in a sense is, wow, you know, I think I better jump on this, maybe buy my home, maybe do this, maybe do that. Are people more optimistic about where we're going from a, a from your perspective because of that, or do all the other things sort of neutralize it? So I think so. You, okay, so optimism—that's a great question because mm-hmm. if you look at consumer confidence, and there's a there, there's two components: there's current sentiment and there's expectations. And current sentiment has been flat. Yeah, I mean it's been it's been strong coming out of the Great Recession because mm-hmm. we're confident we're getting out of this recession. But at current expect current sentiment is you know it's been good it's been slowly rising expectations has really jumped because people are really optimistic about the future mm-hmm. about the economy so that's definitely showing some trust some optimism for consumers and wh- you know why why would it not be you know, we have 1.3 million more jobs yeah. than people looking for jobs out today we have wages rising yeah. we have low inflation uh, but again there's overhangs of the trade war with political uncertainty uh, yeah, I want to make sure uh, I've got one one more question for you, basically, but I want to make sure folks go to Cetera.com, C-E-T-E-R-A.com, Cetera.com, because there's lots of information there, not just about what we're talking about uh, today, but there's also a really good article uh, that I looked at today, which is about the future of innovation and wealth management. And so mm-hmm. just just a lot of great information. It's really clear to me that you all are right out in the forefront of this. Uh, and that is really also, just so you know, Gene, when people are out mm-hmm. in front like you all are, what happens is we tend to have an affinity with your level of forthcoming and openness to share this information. And that's brilliant strategy from your organization, if you don't mind me saying. It's just brilliant. Oh. Um, Thank you. Yeah, we yeah we try to read the tea leaves and see where everything is going and yeah. try our best. And I got to tell you, most folks don't want to come out and talk about it. They're afraid that maybe I'll say something that won't happen, but that's never been the case in all the interviews I've done with your team. Um, I want to ask you this question. I I want to I want to know a personal message from you, but more than that, if you had a crystal ball, mm-hmm. what do you see beyond twenty twenty? So 2021, <laughs> or where? How 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 much? How how, how big let's, is my crystal let's ball? Let's just go to January 20, 2021. And the reason I like to look a year ahead, we always look a year ahead, mm-hmm. is because for, in most people's mind, 2019's over. I mean, I, I'm just sharing. Right. Now that's news that you may not know about from a psychological perspective. <laughs> the energy of 2020 and the number itself, from a numerology perspective, is one of the most powerful we've ever had. So people are mm-hmm. drawn to that, and that's yes. why they're looking at how shall I go through next year? What should I know? And I think so. Let me let me use your analogy one sure. one more step further. So yeah. how do I have 20? What's what's my 2020 vision for 2020? How about that? I love that. <gasps> sure, but I'm going to trademark that right now. I'm going to buy the website. Hold on. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so, so what's, our, what's our, our, our anticipation? So the one thing that we can absolutely guarantee for 2020, one thing, one big thing, is that market volatility is going to pick up. Now, we've been saying this for a while. Market volatility will pick up. So think about this. The S&P 500, which is a, a broad stock market index, and you know, generally speaking, it moves up or down, plus or minus 1%, about 25% of the time, normal market volatility. 
right now, this year, we're at about 14% of the time moving up or down 1%. Volatility is very low. Also, volatility tends to pick up later in the business cycle, and it's actually gotten lower. And as you start to read these headwinds versus tailwinds, this good data and bad data, this creates market volatility. So you have all these three things we think are going to be really affecting the markets, creating this huge market swings. This is why it's, it's important. Like, you know, you're a doctor. You obviously, uh, if, if, if I have, uh, I, I know you're not a medical doctor, but like a, like a, a general care practitioner, but let's say if I have a, if I go see my doctor, I see my doctor to go help me with, um, you know, to help cure me in terms of an illness or something. I don't do it myself. Yeah. Just like your listeners need to go talk to an advisor because, yeah. yes, we've had great times in the markets, but things are changing. You need to get that advice, that medical advice, that investment advice. I love it. I know you've got to run. Thank you so much for everything you're doing. And thank you for getting this word out. And I want to just say to everybody, go to Cetera.com, C-E-T-E-R-A.com. Lots of information. But one of the things that I think we can learn from Gene is that let's become aware and let's make sure that we know how to support ourselves in a way that is so expansive and abundant because we now have information. See you in a few, everybody. Definitely. We'll be right back. Thank you, Gene. 